Hello, friends. My name is Josh Yates, and I'm the Executive Director of the Orman Center at Duke Divinity School. Welcome to the Call to Shalom, where we seek to activate agents of thriving through storytelling. Guided by the mandate named in Jeremiah 29.7, Seek the Shalom of the City Where I Have Called You, Call to Shalom is a series of conversations about what it means and takes to be agents of true thriving in particular fields, communities, and in this cultural moment. The series will bring together a wide range of doers and thinkers to share how their own vocational and personal journeys have sought to answer this biblical call. We hope their stories will inspire and equip you to seek shalom in your own life, field, and community. In this second of two episodes on the theme of racial repair, I'm joined by Pastor James Galliard, Dr. Lakeisha Walrand, and again by my Orman Center colleague, Bruce Grady. James is senior pastor and CEO of Word Tabernacle Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, and a member of the North Carolina General Assembly representing the state's 25th House District. Dr. Walren is the president of New York Theological Seminary and serves as executive pastor at First Corinthian Baptist Church alongside her husband. In this week's episode, we resume our conversation on how a theology of repentance and repair around race in America must be central to how Christians answer the call to shalom in our time. Tune in for one of the richest conversations I've had around what biblical justice means for racial repair in practice, including facing up to the brokenness of truth-telling and how we can repair our institutions by repairing souls. And as always, full biographies and other resources that came up in our discussion are included in our show notes. All right, so I'll kick things off. Um, In our series on the call to Shalom, we think that uh, you can't really talk about this old biblical idea of Shalom if you're not prepared to talk about what's been broken in your communities. You can't talk about repair, pathways for repair, a theology of repair, if you're not prepared to talk about what's broken. And so my first question, and maybe we'll start with, start with Dr. Walren on this question, is what's broken? Um, thank you so much. And I'm so grateful to, to have the opportunity to be in conversation um, with you all. You know, I, I am such an optimist. Um, it's challenging for me to start with the, the things that are, are most challenging to us and the things that are broken, because there are so many amazingly wonderful things that are happening in our world. Um, but we do know that right now, within our current context, um, I think one of the um, one, one, one image of brokenness is in our capacity to really engage in truth telling. Uh, there was a time when I was coming up where there was a difference between fact and opinion. Um, and everyone was entitled to an opinion, but the facts were the facts. Um, and I think what we've seen really in the past you know, five or six years is this kind of evolution of the facts being very difficult to discern. Um, and I think we've experienced that and we are currently experiencing that, whether we're looking at what's happening within the political arena, um, facts and opinion being very muffled, where we're looking at um, our social engagement, um, our racial engagement, um, just our capacity to all be able to look um, at the truth and recognize it at the tr- as the truth and recognizing that there is a difference between truth telling um, and really honoring the facts as opposed to allowing our own opinions 
uh, to emerge as factual information when in, in actuality that's not the case. Um, and so I just kind of see that rampantly, uh, whether it's through social media, whether it's through the news, the, the tweets, the Instagram, all of those uh, the conversations that we see, even in, in our pulpits. Um, I think there's just challenges around being honest about where we are in the, the true repair work that needs to be done. So would it be fair to say that we have a double challenge, right? One may be there are things that are truly broken. And the second challenge is, is we don't really know how to come to some shared understanding. Right. Of, of what is broken yeah. or what to do about it. Is that fair? Absolutely. And I think that that is really at the source of why so many communities are at odds with one another, because the facts really aren't emerging as the facts and the opinions are running rampant, um, pretending uh, to be the facts. Pastor Galliard, how about you? How would you answer this question? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, Josh and Bruce for your work and what you do. And Dr. Walker, I would be remiss if I didn't take a moment to commend you on your historic uh, appointment as president of New York Theological Seminary. So congratulations. Um, it, for fear of sounding overly spiritual, um, and I do agree with, with Dr. Walker, I think we're seeing the issue of truth telling, particularly, as you know, I, you know, I serve two hats as both a pastor and an elected official, and we're seeing it with bills that are anti-critical race theory. We're seeing them in, throughout our general assemblies. We, we're fighting one now in North Carolina. And so I do think it's a valid point around, around um, truth-telling. But, but my, my initial response is really in the area of the human soul um, in the sense that we, we live in a, a fallen world and we know that, we know that theologically, um, we know that doctrinally, but we're starting to see it experientially in a way that, in, at least for my generation, we have not seen. And I think the good news for us in this is that you know, we are the church, and as the church, we specialize in the human soul. Um, but I really think we're seeing how fallen our, our world is, and, and we're, going to need, we're, we're going to need to arrive at a, a local, national, international, if you will, reformation, revival. Um, and I think we've been sort of, we've lived in a society for years where people were not willing to expose the full extent of their fallenness. Um, and now there's been sort of a, an open door to say, you know what, you can go ahead and display all of the isms that you have. And so I, I really do think there needs to be a renaissance. This is why I think the church, interestingly enough, for me is more valuable today than it's ever been. I don't subscribe mm -hmm. to the theories of some of our millennials and Generation Zs that kind of start starting to sense that the church is really not as relevant, we're as relevant as ever before, if not more than before. And so for me, this is really a spiritual problem and the repair work for me is really around the human soul. Very good comments from both of you. And I know that you, Pastor Gilliard, has you have already alluded to uh, the connection between what is broken and what needs repairing. Uh, you've mentioned that the soul uh, is what needs repairing. Um, can you elaborate more upon that? What is it about the soul that needs repairing? Yeah, absolutely, and and. I'm, I'm huge on the need for systemic change, huge on the need for institutional change. 
I'm of the theory and of the belief, though, the only way you arrive at institutional change is by way of individual change. You know, for every one person who receives Christ, for every one person who really has a, a, a rethinking and a reformation of their mind, that's one less person that is going to embed themselves in an institution, whether it's education, housing, criminal justice, whatever it is, that's one less person that is going to enter into that environment from an inequity, from, from a lack of equity lens. And so for me, it is around get, getting people into a relationship so that as individuals are better, they are then embedded in institutions who then can make institutions better. Because the, com the complexity of what we're dealing with in terms of systems, whether it is education, whether it is housing, whether it is healthcare, I mean, we can go criminal justice, economics, we can go through the whole list, right? The work of transforming structures and systems is long, tedious, difficult work. And none of that work happens if we don't embed in those institutions change human beings, change people. And so for me, it is around helping shape and form the intellect and the emotion of individuals who in turn can embed themselves. And I believe no institution is better equipped to do that work than the church, which is why we need seminaries, whether it is New York Theological Seminary or Duke, to really begin to help develop the thinking of, of young learners, older learners, so that their theology and their doctrine is really lent towards a proper balance of justification by faith and social justice. And I think we've had one side of the spectrum for so long that it is really warped um, the intellect and the emotion of people that are in places of authority and power. And, that, and I think we have to dismantle that. So I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pastor Gilliard. As I turn to Dr. Warren, who has already identified truth-telling as the subject of what's broken. So I'd like to hear, we'd like to hear more from you about what needs repairing with respect to truth-telling. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, I, you know, completely agree with, with Dr. Um, Yalyard in terms of um, recognizing that the church is, is the place for this repair work to begin um, and for us to have the capacity to change the world. Um, we saw that happen with 12 disciples that we're still talking about, that we're still preaching about. Um, but yet there there has been this disconnect. And I think our capacity as churchgoers, you know, as followers of the carpenter to take a step back and really examine what's happening and identify why this disconnect um, is 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 ongoing is really, really the challenge. And that's a part of our own truth telling. So as relevant as the church is, we have to recognize um, that and I, we probably also that article last month that says that now less than 50 percent of Americans identify themselves as religious. Um, and so we have this growing category of the SBNR, spiritual but not religious, because something is going on in the institution that is causing a generation to not want to be associated with the institution itself. Um, you know, and I'm thinking about my own children who grew up in the church, their daughters and sons of the church. Both of their parents are pastors. Um, 
And even with their engagement and the engagement of their friends, there is something happening intergenerationally that I think, you know, our generation and, and my mother's generation and my grandmother's generation need to do the intentional work of investigating and being honest with ourselves that there is something that's missing in terms of us being able to connect with these millennials and with Generation X. And what can we do um, to shift that change? Um, and a part of that repair, you know, from my perspective is having organizations, whether they're seminaries or, or churches um, or other faith based organizations that are willing to engage in truth telling, that are willing to be more inclusive, um, that are willing to be more diverse, that are willing to ask the question, what does the community need now, as opposed to assuming that the needs are the same that they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Um, and so I think that our, our capacity to recognize we need the church, uh, we need our faith, we need our spirituality, um, but recognize why aren't these generations that are following us recognizing that need um, to be as great as we do. Um, and then that's the work. It's the intergenerational work of repairing, of, of truth telling, um, of recognizing that maybe we do need to do some things different. You know, maybe there are some traditions that we keep, but maybe there are some uh, that we need to question um, and, and redefine and reimagine. Uh, it, it is our capacity um, to look beyond what we see and recognize that there is a capacity for possibility. Um, and until we really embrace that capacity, then we will continue to see this decline in our denominationals, we'll, in our denominations, in church participation, and in the numbers of folks who are not identifying as Christian or religious anymore. Pastor Galliard, what would you add to that? I don't know. There's a whole lot <laughs> that I could add to it um, because I agree. I think that I think the challenge here is. We have pockets of society, and this includes the church, that have directly benefited and continue to benefit from the lack of truth telling, um, mm. or who have shaped or created their own narrative to their benefit. Thus, the whole debate going on right now with critical race theory, right? So um, I, I think we have seen, we, we're seeing this within churches, and this is not, when I make that statement, that's not just political. I mean, we see it with, in December, I think it was December of last year, where the seven Southern Baptist um, seminary presidents came out with a joint statement against yeah. uh, critical theory that created an, an exodus of African-American conservative Southern Baptist pastors, myself included, from the denomination. And so we're seeing that there has been this vested interest um, in groups of people who have benefited financially, economically, in terms of power, in terms of influence. Um, and, and, and so it's going to take a task to then begin to convert individuals who have benefited from this. Um, to be able to then change the narrative to be a, tr a more truthful narrative. And I think that's where work of the African-American church, African-American pastors, um, more, um, how can I say this, more uh, honest, biblically solid um, expositors and scholars where we need to begin crafting, um, writing our own commentary, where we need to be, Mm -hmm. uh, because it, for truth telling, let me just insert this real quick. You know, I, 
was thinking about a, a sermon series a few months back that I did. And, you know, I was, as I got the, I, I did an entire series about how we view women scripturally. And mm. all of that commentary that we receive, that we trust, and this is no, you know, shade on commentators, but you have men telling women's stories. So you don't have the women scholars and the women commentators that we're gleaning from, right? So it's not just a racial conversation from my perspective around truth telling, it's also a conversation around gender um, that, that we really need to be able to develop our own scholars, our own presses. We need to be able to begin to our own story. Let me, let me, at this point, this raises a really interesting question as, as I'm listening to this rich, rich discussion. And I'm curious about what both of you think of this. So in my experience, though, when we ask the question, okay, what's broken? Uh, what needs repairing? And then we get to the question, who's responsible to repair it? We, we end up at a really interesting conundrum, right? Because for a long time, black and brown people, and not least black and brown women, have carried the burden of this for the longest amount of time. And then you got a, good, a lot of good, well-meaning white folk, I'll, put my, I'll speak personally, who want to come and say, okay, tell us how we can help. What do we do differently? And then the response from my close African-American friends are, you got to figure that out. We've been carrying this for a long time. It's time that you start picking up the slack. So we're, we're at a kind of conundrum. So I, I want to get to this. The conundrum for me is we're each responsible, but in different ways and, and to different extent in these kinds of conversations. So how do we start? Where do people start in picking up their own responsibility? How, how do you counsel people? Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm not sure who you want to do that first. Uh, so. who, who wants to take it? I'm going to defer to you. I want to hear what you, you have to say, Pastor. So let me, let me be very clear. I have a very strong bias. And just because, you know, I have a bias that make me wrong. Um, I am a pro-black church guy, unapologetically. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I think that the only institution that can fix it, now it's kind of a two-sided, two-edged sword here. I think only the black church can fix it. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're going to see in terms of how we dig our way out of this, the black church has got to be the leader. And this is why I say that, because... We have both inspiration for information and incarnation. We are the only group of Christians that love God so much that when we couldn't worship inside the church, when we were forced to go to the balcony, when we couldn't preach in, in pope, white pulpits, when they, they cracked the door on the outside so we could just listen in a little bit, it was in that context that black Christians were like, no, I love God too much. We'll build a church. We'll go out in the field. But we're going. So we have an incarnational relationship that is through pain and difficulty and setback where we fully identify with the sufferings of Christ. And I think because of that, the black church is uniquely qualified to take the lead in this. And to your question, when white Christians particularly say to me, and I have been asked the question many times, um, particularly, you know, in the midst of our last president, four years of a president, and all of the 
all the issues created racially in our country, they would come to me just, you know, I'm the safe black guy, I guess, the black guy they know, whatever the case is. And my white friends would say, Pastor, what do I do? James, what do I do? And I'm going to tell you the first answer I give. And I've yet to have one take me up on it. Join a black church. Join a black church, be faithful in live in that black church, serve in that black church. And a hundred percent of the time, what they tell me is, well, if I do that, my my eight-year-old, my, my daughter, my son might be the only black, the only white kid in Sunday school. They are incapable of moving in that direction. And I think that is that's the way to prepare as far as I'm concerned. So that's my initial response. I, I actually love that. I, I, that is a response that I had not considered because I too was, you know, getting those same questions, um, particularly during 2020 when we saw, you know, everything that was happening across our country racially and with, with all of the protests. Um, I, I agree with you in the sense of, you know, I think that as you were speaking, it made me think about our ancestors who. Uh, couldn't couldn't read that it was illegal for them to read. But even though they weren't able to read the Bible, somehow they were able to find the Lord. Somehow they were able to connect uh, to a faith uh, when, you know, preachers were preaching slaves, be obedient to your slave masters. Somehow they were able to go in and find, you know, the words of Jesus and be able to come out with the hymn. Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. Um, so I think there is something very powerful about the black church, something very powerful, unique about, um, you know, black and brown people of faith. Um, and I also think that this work needs to be done collectively and collaboratively, um, it, particularly when we recognize where power lies. Um, I think it's our capacity to be willing to break the rules um, that really will give us this freedom and allow us to take responsibility and move forward. Um, and so whether it was breaking the rules, you know, during slavery or whether it's breaking the rules, you know, during Jim Crow, uh, whether it's breaking those rules. I grew up in a church that said women could not be preachers or pastors, um, recognizing and being open to the movement of the spirit in a way that we could hear truth. It goes back to that truth telling. Um, but we can't be the only ones telling the truth because there are just certain people who aren't going to listen to my voice. We do need our white brothers and sisters to be willing to, to stand alongside um, us, for all of us to be willing to stand alongside each other and tell the truth um, about what is really happening in our world. And it's from that truth telling that our hearts can change, that our minds can change, and that we can work together to create the systemic change that's necessary for our community and our country to move forward. Um, whether you're looking at slavery, you know, black people didn't come out of slavery by themselves, but they started the work. Whether you're looking at the civil rights movement, black people didn't do that by themselves, but they started that work. Um, it's the same thing with the Black Lives Matter movement initiated and started um, among the African-American community. But we can't do this work you know, by ourselves. And it is our capacity to recognize um, and be honest with our black brothers and sisters, our white brothers and sisters to say, listen, the way we've made progress in the past is, has been working together. Even if you look at the, the women's rights movement, women didn't do that by themselves. We had to have, you know, the men alongside us working collaboratively with us. So I do think that the church is the starting place for this work. You know, it goes back to us being in the world, but not of the world. But at the same time, we're going to have to garner um, the support, 
um, in, in building coalitions between like-minded people, like-minded organizations so that we can move forward. Um, the only way that this happens is if people who don't look like me can have compassion for me, can understand what my story is, and then be able to share in that truth telling and that storytelling. And so we start in the church, but we have to expand. You know, we think about even with the civil rights movement, only 13 percent of black churches were involved in that movement. But yet here we are because it wasn't just the church and it wasn't just that 13 percent. It was that 13 percent garnering um, support. Um, you know, collaboration with others who are outside of the church in order to, to make that progress. So I think in terms of responsibility, um, yes, it starts with us, but it doesn't stop with us. It has to expand beyond where we are. Thank you both. Yes, those are very, very interesting comments. I am intrigued uh, by your comment, Dr. Dr. Warren, about going beyond the boundary because I believe that there's risk taking involved in going across those boundaries and building those kinds of collaborative efforts uh, that you've described and that you've also described Pastor Gillier. And so that leads me to imagine that there is a connection between um, this brokenness that you've described and the shape of your personal story. So how does this brokenness connect and shape your personal story? Mm. You don't sound like you're speaking from theory. You sound as though you're speaking from experience. So I want to hear uh, about your personal story. How does, how does this brokenness connect and shape your personal story? Absolutely. Um, and I am absolutely speaking from from, you know, my own personal experience. I am a daughter of the church, um, born into a very um, faithful and faith family. Um, I had a praying grandmother, a praying mother. Um, raised in a church where I was very active, you know, I sang in the choir. I was on the junior usher board and the liturgical dance. I, you know, was doing it all, um, but was raised, you know, as I said before, uh, with a pastor who said, God does not call women to preach. I embraced that fully because my pastor said it because my family believed it. I'd never seen a woman preacher before uh, growing up in small town, Texas. Um, and so I, I left home at 18 going to Spelman College you know, and, and would proclaim, as my pastor did, God does not call women to preach. What? No, God doesn't call, use women in that way. Women are to be silent in the church because those are the scriptures uh, that were reinforced in my church. And I never forget, I get to Spelman College. I'm taking a class, Women in the Bible, with Dr. Flora Wilson Bridges. Um, and I'm actually failing the class. Now, I've never failed a class in my life. I graduated at the top of my class. I'm the straight A, you know, maybe a B every once in a while. But I had a D in her class because every time I referred to God as he in a paper, she would circle it in red and give me an F. Um, and so she and she would stop reading. She said she was not reading past a God identified male. Um, and so she basically was offering extra credit. It was the end of the semester. And anyone who came to hear her preach and wrote a reflection paper on it had the opportunity to boost their grade by a letter grade. So 
I went to hear her preach, not because I believe God called women to preach. And as a matter of fact, I was telling myself the whole time I was going to chapel, I can't believe I'm going to listen to this, you know, just kind of talking myself out of even being open. I get to King Chapel. It's at Morehouse College right across the street. And she starts preaching. And as this woman starts preaching, I find myself sliding down in the chair um, uncontrollably. By the time she finished the sermon, I was sitting on the floor at King Chapel, just crying, tears just rolling down my face. And all I could think was they lied to me because here was this woman preaching with so much power. And I will never forget her sermon. It's time to stand up. She was preaching about the woman bent over double. Um, And so for me, I was stuck in that moment because now I had to question everything. Well, if they lied to me about this, what else have they lied to me about? It goes back to this notion of truth telling. Um, And so for me, I had a decision to make in that moment. I could either believe what I had believed for the 18 years of my life, or I could believe what God was doing right in front of my face. And I think for many of us, as we walk this faith, we often come to that same challenge. But do we have the courage to believe what we're experiencing in the moment? Or are we so caught up in what we think we know about God and faith and others that we hold on to dear life, to what we thought we knew? And and that was that's my story. And, And so from there, you see now I accepted my call to preach and now I'm you know, president leading a seminary as a womanist theologian. Um, But it was only because I was willing um, to release what I thought I knew and open myself up to what God was doing in the moment. Um, And so that is really what allowed me then to begin questioning everything and to begin breaking the rules that need to be broken. Very good. Very good. Thank you so much, Dr. Walren. And Pastor Gallery, we want to know from you, how does this brokenness connect and shape your personal story? And I appreciate that. I I would like, I wish I could hear more of Dr. Baldwin's story because that's really, this is such a good example of why it's so important that we all get to share our truth. We all get to share our journey Um, because it's so powerful and helps you really identify with people's perspective. And so I appreciate the question, but Tiffany Dr. Walden's answer. Um, I'm biracial. And um, I grew up um, before anti I was three or four before anti-miscegenation laws were ever passed in the country. Um, my dad, my parents got married in 1960. Um, stayed married for 50 years, 52 years before my dad died. My dad was the first black person in the community. When I left for Morehouse at 17, my mother was the last white person left in the community. Uh, we didn't drive, so we went to a United Methodist Church. I grew up United Methodist. I got saved in the United Methodist Church. And we had my first three pastors were white men. And I started noticing something. As the community started shifting, um, more black people would join the church. And I started noticing some things. First thing I noticed is that right around the time the pastor's children got to be started dating, got the got, got the dating age, they suddenly left. Second thing I noticed is that more black people kept joining the church. And then finally, when I'm when I'm 15 years old or so, we get our first black pastor. By that time, the church was half black and half white. And what was interesting is that 
almost every white member with the exception of my mother and one other woman who were white and left the church and found another white United Methodist church. And it, 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 left me, it left me realizing that that's not what church should look like. It left me recognizing how racially damaged we were um, within, and within religion, within our, within our Christianity, and within our families. Um, because I never, my, my, my mother was hurt, all her family abandoned her. And so as a 56 year old man today, I've never once sat in the home of anyone on my white side of the family. And so, so I know how divided we are racially, whether it's in terms of bloodline or in terms of our, our, our religion, our Christianity. And I see that as a major part of truth telling to Dr. Walden's point, and I see this as a part of the evidence of our severe depravity and how fallen we are, particularly in America. And so those early experiences, and I could go on and on, I spent time in South Africa with Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela and, and other experiences around racism and bringing about equality. And so for me, I've just been kind of governed with a lens of what church should look like and shouldn't look like and how, how, damaging, how damaged we are as it relates to that. So that, that's in essence the nutshell of, of my journey. Both of you, those are both powerful stories um, in, um, in, in memorable. And I, I agree with you, uh, Ash Galliard, hearing one another's stories is a, maybe one of the first steps uh, on the path to repair um, and the path to understanding. But let me ask this question, because I think when we think about the magnitude of the challenges before us, um, we think about the deep histories, the wounds um, that are carried, the burdens that are carried. We'll get to we'll get to some of the bright spots and some of what think what makes us hopeful, Doctor Walden. But before we get there, <laughs> but before we get there, um, I guess I want to ask a question about um, what are the key, what do you both see as the key barriers uh, on this journey towards repair? Repair of ourselves, repair of our families, repair of our churches, repair of our neighborhoods, scale it all the way out. What do you think are some of the, 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 the most important barriers we have to see, tell the truth about, if we're going to overcome them? We're going we're gonna to make any progress. And let's start with you, Dr. Gallier, or Pastor Gallier. You know, one of the things I'm going to start with as a barrier, this may sound a little bit surprising, but... I think people are tired. I think people are stressed. I think people are frustrated. I think people are, um, I think our mental health is fractured. I think people are just worn out from this world. Um, and they're worn out from everything that they're seeing. Um, I was sharing with my staff just last week at a staff meeting, a wide pastoral ministry, a church ministry. And you know, it is a, you know, to quote one author, it is, pastoral ministry is a series of ungrieved losses. And, you know, it's just tough work. And I think people are, are tired. So I think initially it's easy for people to just kind of like, I just, I'm tired. I just don't want to be tired. So I do think it's going to be incumbent upon us in the church environment to know how to teach the congregation how to develop, um, to practice resilience, to teach them how to have a sound mental health and emotional health 
to accompany the spiritual health in order to be able to move forward with this work. So interestingly enough, I think just human nature and the stress and the emotionalism of coming off barrier. And then I think uh, perhaps a second barrier for me, and I believe it was with these two to begin with, is the spirituality in, in, in terms of how people really see the church. Because I believe that the church is a major component of this, and I do agree with Dr. Wallace's earlier comment that it does need to be collaborative. I fully agree with that. Um, but I do see the church as a major player in this. But right now in society, I think there is an increasing number of people who see the church as not really relevant and doesn't mm -hmm. see the church as continuing to be an agent of transformation. And so I think that is a, a barrier that we're going to have to overcome because structurally the church has what's necessary, but we don't have, we're not, we don't have the same level of trust in the community that we enjoyed 50 years ago or 40 years ago, even 30 years ago, right? right now. Um, and so I think we're going to have to almost prove ourselves as the trust and change agent and the trust and transforming agent as we're also doing the work of helping people not give up and not quit. I think people are just slamming Um COVID didn't help with that. Um, and so to me, those are those are two of the big things. Dr. Warren, yeah. what, do you, what do you see as the barriers? Yeah, I would agree. Um, you know, I was sitting here listening um, to uh, Pastor Galliard and, um, you know, the word that came to me as one of our greatest barriers is conformity. Um, the, the fact that we, many of us have lost our authenticity. Um, and I heard someone say before that authenticity is our superpower. And so many people are trying to to be like other people. <laughs> um, and to me, it's you're trying to be a, a, a fake copy of a fake copy because those people are also trying to be like others. Um, and so what we see is that, you know, um, folks are not willing to embrace their uniqueness and their authenticity because of um, th this, this compelling nature to fit in. Um, and so you know, for me, as I look around, even as we, you know, we look at some of our pastors who sound alike, you know, who sometimes you hear the same sermons, they're very similar. Um, so it's, it's from our teenagers who are trying to be like others, to our young adults who are trying to fit in, to pastors who are trying to, to figure it out. Um, and I think that when we remember you know, that we, we serve a God who loves variety, um, whether we're looking at the, the the different number of trees, thousands of different types of trees, uh, you know, to the different types of animals, the species within the species, um, to to humans, and rather than seeing our differences um, as as a gift, uh, we find ourselves uh, backing up and, and trying to be like others. So I think the conformity is is one of the greatest barriers. Um, but the other barrier, if I had to name a second, would be social media. Um, and I think social media um, and the desire for likes, uh, the desire for reposts and retweets and um, for folks to follow you um, really pushes people to to be, you know, it, it, it pushes us to further conform. 
Um, and even as we recognize that the, the, the highest rate of, of suicide is among what black boys between the age of eight and 13, what is happening in our world? What is going on in social media um, that is pushing our youth to feel like they can't be themselves? Um, and so I think that, that this growing need for affirmation um, and this growing need for, for likes and follows and, and, and reposts and retweets is driving us. The number of hours that we're spending on our phones as opposed to in our communities is causing further division. And so we're not talking to each other as much, which I think is would be my final barrier, that, that, that the limited conversation and the conversations that aren't happening because we're looking at our phones and, and posting and tweeting and trying to keep up. And oh my gosh, I, I only put one post today. Um, and so I think that while social media is a gift and can be a gift, uh, for many people, individuals um, and organizations, it's really just become a tool to say, look at me, how wonderful I am. Um, but you're only posting how wonderful you are. You're not posting how depressed you are or, um, you know, how you're you're suffering, you know, staying sober. Um, and it gives us false images that people continue to try to conform to. So it's cyclical. Um, in the sense of conformity, social media, authenticity, it goes back to conformity. I mean, we find ourselves in this cycle where people really don't know who they are. And if we don't know who we are, then how are we going to strive to become who God has called us to be, not only as an individual, but in community? Amen. Amen. Very well put. And um, there's so much more that we could dig into that about self-love and um, love of others that I'm sure makes uh, connections with, with those things. But I'd, I'd like to pose another question to you, Dr. Wallen. How do we source the work of repair in ourselves and in others? Yeah, that is such a great question. And, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is to recognize who I am in my faith. Um, and for me, it is about recognizing that, yes, I'm a Christian. Um, but more than a Christian, I am a follower of the carpenter, um, of the Jewish carpenter. Um, and it's through that teaching that I think the answers lie. Um, so whether we are looking at Jesus who's saying, you know, I've come to set the oppressed free, to set the captives free, which is social justice. So for these churches who say we don't have to do anything around social justice, Jesus was an activist. <laughs> um, and so we see that right there in that verse or um, whether the disciples are arguing who's greatest among you. And Jesus reminds them, you know, he or she who is greatest among you is the servant of all. So get busy being servants instead of trying to be great um, or whether it is Jesus saying the world will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Not how many organizations you have, not how many degrees you have, not how many titles you have, not how much money you have, um, not how large your church is, but by your capacity to love one another. Um, and then I think finally, because I love me some Bible. Um, but when we look at that Matthew 25 mandate, you know, when you, you're doing the work and don't even know you're doing the work, you know, 
that, that we're called to feed those who are hungry and clothe those who are naked and to visit those who are in prison or in jail um, or in the hospital to show kindness to the stranger. Um, you know, and the crowd said, well, when, when did we do that? Um, they didn't even know they were doing it. And Jesus says, well, what you've done unto the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've also done unto me. You know, so for me, it goes back to this teaching of the carpenter. So often we want to focus on the Christ, but the Christ for me is the easy way out. We've got to look at the totality of who Jesus was. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it was what really got him killed. What was really the crust of his work? And Jesus was a revolutionary. He was, you know, rebellious. He was a rule breaker um, and gives us the example, shows us what it means to, to live in this world in community the way God has called us to do. And that is having the capacity to love, not just the people that love us, right? Because that's easy. Anybody can do that. But can you love people that don't look like you? Can you love people that don't believe what you believe? Can you love even that person, you know, who, who has evil intentions against you? Our capacity to love our way through is the way that we get through every single obstacle that comes our way. And if it's not love, it's not God. If we can embrace that belief and go back to the teaching of the Jewish carpenter, right? Because we forget that Jesus wasn't a Christian. We, we are high and holy that we're Christians, but we're something that Jesus wasn't even. <laughs> that go back to those teachings about love, about generosity, about praying, about fasting, those disciplines that bring us back to ourselves, give us the time to think and reimagine uh, relationships with ourselves, with others and with God. For me, it all boils down to the capacity that we have to really engage in loving relationships. I'm sorry, I felt like preaching a little bit. No, no, preach on. <laughs> no, that's, that's fine. I was gonna take up a love offering. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Walren. Uh, that was really insightful. Um, Pastor Gilliard. Yeah, I'm with you, man. I was about to lift the offering. So um, <laughs> I appreciate all that. I, I think Dr. Walden is spot on. I think that the, the pathway to repair, if you will, has to be biblical. And I think, I think you're hard pressed to find a single book in the Bible where you don't see some kind of pathway for repair. I was uh, speaking, I was lecturing uh, for Shaw Divinity School last month um, for the annual minister's conference on Awakening the Soul of America. And as I was talking to the students, you know, I, and I would offer this as the answer that I think Moses and Aaron's approach arrow about letting God's people go. I think if we were to do a tease that out and really do a study of Pharaoh coming back with his various compromises, I think we could see embedded within that a pathway to repair. And, and then very quickly for me, what that would look like is, you know, Pharaoh says to them initially, well, you know, you can worship your God, but just stay in the land, right? And so I think it's, you know, basically worship in my culture, worship on my context, worship on my terms. And so I think the first step to repair is we have to be authentic to the point of Dr. Walgren's point, we have to be authentic and transparent to whom we are, to who we are, whoever that group of people is seeking repair. You know, it 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 concerns me. I that's me being really polite. Um, 
it, it concerns me when churches call themselves multicultural when they are not. You know, they may have several races, but it's usually a single culture. Um, and, you know, I, um, I, so I think step one is spirit. I think we have to be authentic to who we need to be spiritually. spiritually. You know, I don't need to, if I'm, a, if I'm at a black church, I don't need, I don't need the pressure to replace my hymns and my anthems and my spirituals with integrity and Maranatha music. Like, I don't need to worship in your land. You know, and so I think, first of all, authentic spirituality is the first step for me to prepare. I think the second is making sure that we really have a focus on social justice and a focus on progress that's beyond our spirituality. We remember in Exodus, Pharaoh says to Moses, OK, I'll tell you what, then, you know, worship, but don't go far away. Right. So first it was like stand my land and he says, don't go far away. So we don't. We okay with you shouting. We okay with you loving God, but just don't progress, right? And so I think mm. the second step is progress. And then he says mm. to him, and I'll make it quick. I'm not trying to keep up with Dr. Walden, but then he says, you know, okay, then just the men go. So then there's this dynamic of abandoning your family. So I think step three is making sure that we are developing the next generation, that we are honoring um, men and women in our families and in our communities and in, in our environments. And then if you remember the last compromise he says is, okay, fine. Worship your God, take your family, but you don't get to have any flocks and herds with you. Leave all of your resources behind you. So I think for me, the fourth step is around financial equity. It is around making sure that we're having conversations around social oppressions, conversations around institutional racism, conversations around the impact of rural isolation, not letting people um, create their own narrative of poverty to try to convince us that people are in that place because they're lazy or because they don't want to work or they don't have a work ethic. So for me, you know, we could go through pretty much every book of the Bible and I think we could find some type of biblical view and biblical pathway to prepare. And I think the Exodus um, narrative is a great, a great story. Mm, that's good. Mm-hmm. Let me ask this question, and, and mm-hmm. finally we get to the, poss- the, the the what we'll call a little bit later green shoots. But but where do you see exciting, uh, inspiring versions of repair that give you hope that mm-hmm. that make you think that okay, um, yeah we we see that we see the depth of our depravity, but we also can see uh, bright spots. Right places where things are actually shining through, and and offering us a different way forward. Dr. Walden, I want to start with you because I think you probably have a few. <laughs> sure. Well, I absolutely have to start with the work that's happening at New York Theological Seminary, uh, where we are preparing faith and thought leaders to engage in relevant, restorative, and revolutionary work. Um, And I think that our capacity to create um, a a path forward where faith and works um, can impact community is how we continue to move forward. And so at NYTS, um, we are looking uh, for faith and thought leaders who um, want to learn more about God, more about faith not just so that they can lord it over people or be the smartest person in the room, but so then they can share this information with others. You know, it used to be that the church 
um, and the seminaries were kind of the gatekeepers of knowledge. You, you know, as the pastor knew everything. Well, now we have the Internet and people can go and search and look and Google, not, you know, the Greek, the Hebrew. You don't have to take, you know, two, two years of a language to understand what Shalom is anymore. Um, and so I think there's something to be said about organizations that are trying to, and not just, you know, NYTS, but so many other seminaries and divinity schools, including Duke, um, that is doing the work of educating people who are interested in making a difference in the world. Um, and that's really where it starts. It, it is that one person at a time. Um, it's that one person who attends seminary um, and doesn't leave what they learn when they go back to their church because it's too difficult to have the conversations in the church. But those things that you learn in seminary, those questions that arise, um, people want to know those things. And we do ourselves a disservice when we keep that information to ourselves and then we go back and preach, you know, the same sermons that we heard our father or our grandfather, you know, or our reverend or our bishop preach instead of sharing this new knowledge and this revelation that God really wants the world um, to have. So certainly um, at New York Theological Seminary, certainly um, at our church, First Corinthian Church, uh, Baptist Church, where my husband is the pastor, the Reverend Michael Walworm, where we're actually doing that work. Um, and so many other churches and so many other temples and um, so many other mosques and so many other organizations who are doing the work of reconciliation, who are doing the work of being relevant and who are doing the work of looking at possibility, having a passion uh, for the possibility. So not settling for what we have in front of us, but certainly looking for opportunities to do new things. Pastor Galliard, where are you seeing the bright spots? Yes. Amen to that. Um, and I would agree. I think that, you know, I think quite frankly, this series that you guys are doing um, is, is a bright spot. For me. I think um, the work of schools like New York Theological Seminary, I think the, I mean, this is going to maybe be a surprise, maybe, but I, I was encouraged when Russell Moore left the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of Southern Baptist Convention to be the public theologian for Christianity today. You know, um, you know, that might you might have to put that one out, but I mean that was I felt like that was a movement in the right direction. Um you see reformations and collaborative relationships being built nationally with um black and white congregations at the table together. Um, you know, you're seeing examples of this in Chicago um, and throughout Texas, Dallas and Houston. You're seeing some of it with, quite frankly, you know, to be really transparent with African-American, large Af pastors of large African-American churches who were formerly Southern Baptists who are now saying, you know what, we can't really hang with the denomination anymore, but we want to form collaborative relationships to do good work. You know, so you're seeing this, you know, with Charlie Dates in Chicago and with other people. You're seeing parachurch organizations pop up, mm -hmm. like the Anne um, that mm -hmm. is really looking at how biblical value views and social justice work. You're seeing churches form, um, continuing to form their own CDCs, their own parachurch organizations, their own nonprofits. So, I mean, I think this work is going on naturally, and I think, the, and, and that's encouraging for me, and I think one of the tactics Hey, the Christian Community Development, CCDA has been doing this work forever. You know, they went through a little bit of a bleak with some leadership a while back, but I think they've recovered. I mean, I think they've got the right concept. Um, 
sojourners. I mean, so you have so many examples of organizations that I think mm-hmm. embrace the work of repair, um, are doing the work, and committed to the work, and understand that you don't have to choose between justification by faith and social justice. That the gospel that we are promoting is one that comes together to say, the Jesus we serve is, is interested in you being in heaven and doesn't want you stuck in hell until you get I know, I know we're supposed to be the ones asking the questions, but I just want to say amen to that because it seems like to me we've, we've given ourselves a collective lobotomy where we've separated two hemispheres of our brain uh, where those things go together. It's a holistic gospel. So I just want to say amen to that. Yeah. Um, look, now I'm gonna. Now's the time where we get really fun and funky. So I hope you're ready. If you haven't been having fun already, um, we here's what we do. We we ask every guest what they see as a green shoot that they want to call to our viewers, to our to our listeners, call their attention to that green shoot because they think. That is a green shoot, and by green shoot, I mean, think of a small plant, a, a green shoot that's coming up through the soil. And what we want to do is turn that into a mighty oak, right? a mighty oak tree. And the question is, it needs to be cultivated, it needs to be nourished. We think this green shoot is urgent for our, for our, our lives, for our churches, for our society. So what we're going to do is ask each of you, what do you think is that green shoot that matters most to you, that you feel burning passion? for that you want to call our attention to uh you want to recommend it to us and and we're gonna we're gonna do what a friend of mine did in terms of an elevator pitch i want you to i want you to offer it to us in the time it would take you to get on an elevator and go up three floors you can go longer than that if you want but you get the point what is the issue what's the burning issue what do you think is needed to address that issue Who's the change agent that's that you think is that you're trying to call to to action, and what are the stakes? If if we're able to cultivate this green shoot, what do we get? And if we don't cultivate it, what do we lose? How does that sound? Yeah, you ready? Sounds good. Mm-hmm. All right. Who wants to go first? Want me just pick one of you? All right. All right, I'm picking. All right, Pastor, since you just spoke up, I'm picking you first. So I grew up um, three blocks. So my answer is economic equity. Um, I grew up um, four blocks from Zion Baptist Church. Leon Sullivan, first black person to be on the board of General Motors, founder of OIC. You know, they had a full economic movement. Um, and I think we have tremendous economic inequity in our country. It impacts our churches. It impacts um, every area of our lives, education, housing, family, everything. I, I think I would start with economic equity. And I think the way we get at it is to help churches and nonprofits grow their capacity and their infrastructure. Um, I think the change agent is that we need to challenge philanthropy, foundations, and endowments. Um, there is still search, um, you know, and we may have had a previous conversation um, about this. When I joke with my wife all the time, she's got 
two engineering degrees and MBA from Duke. And I tell her all the time, I'm like, baby, if a black person is smart enough to get into Duke, as big as that endowment is, for how that money got there, they should be going to Duke. And, you know, I think there needs to be a challenge um, around philanthropy and endowments. Right now, only 1% of philanthropy dollars go for African-American organizations. And um, that needs to change. And so I think they could be the change agent. And I think that if we don't get there, I think we're looking at an inability to provide a holistic, catalytic transformation in our community. Uh, and so I think the big issue for me right now is how we, how we create economic equity um, long time to make this last statement, I, I guess the elevator's gone up and down a couple of times now, but um, I remember asking a pastor friend of mine that pastored uh, an all-white First Baptist Church in the area. Um, we would meet once a month, just kind of talk ministry, and we talked about our per capita income. And, you know, his per capita income was literally 10 times what ours was. And you know, we don't recognize the African-American church is still 65% black women. And when we look at salary structures, black women are at the dead bottom. Right? And so in no way our, our nonprofits and our churches can keep pace and do the work without us developing an economic infrastructure to help that along. And I think that's going to fix a lot. So my, my initial answer is economic Fantastic, thank you. Dr. Walren, your turn. I agree wholeheartedly and second that and third it and fourth it and how many ever times I can agree with that. Um, and I think also in alignment with that is, you know, one of the challenges that we have, I think is just disengagement and conformity. Um, and I think it just goes back to the individual. I appreciate um, what pastor said um, in terms of structure, um, because I think that is so important. But as individuals, it is our responsibility to be engaged in the work that we've been called to do. Um, and that includes embracing our own authenticity, recognizing what is unique about us and allowing that to lead us in the work that we've been called to do. Um, and everybody's been called to do work, whether it is preaching or whether it is teaching or whether it is praying or whether it is lobbying or whether it is giving generosity. We all have a work to do. Um, and so embracing the authenticity of our own work um, will create the change that we need to see in our nation and in our world. Um, and the folks who are responsible for doing that are are the change agents, the thought leaders, the faith leaders, um, folks who are, are willing to speak truth to power, our pastors, um, our priests, um, our rabbis, our imams um, have the responsibility to, to figure out a way um, to to worship in a, in a way that allows authenticity to rise um, and then have a mutual respect for what that authenticity looks like in our neighbor. Um, and what is at stake is, is our continued restoration. We are just so divided. We are divided by everything. Um, I was listening to a guru and says that every time you divide the whole, the parts have to be named. And how many names do each of us have because the whole has been divided? And so what does it look like when we bring the whole back together? 
Um, and it just goes back to the woman at the well who said, you know, when Jesus said those who worship, you know, worship in spirit and in truth. If we could get back to that spirit and truth worshiping as opposed to gender worshiping or race worshiping or faith worshiping, um, then we can really begin to see the shifts and the changes, because at the root of all of that, um, compassion rises and love rises. And where there is love, there is capacity for change. Those are good. I think excellent. As, as my dad would say, those dogs will hunt. <laughs> excellent, excellent responses from both of you. I, I feel like my cup is running over, Josh. <laughs> this is really uh, satisfying to hear uh, your insight and your thoughts on these matters. I just thought I would mention, and I don't know whether it still exists, but um, I, I served for a number of years in New York City and had a number of colleagues, pastoral colleagues from NYTS. And you had a Sing Sing program, uh, a program that focused on restorative justice for inmates. Um, it does that still exist? Are, are you um, are you including that within your um, within your mission as you just described and, and, in, and within this call to action as a seminary. Absolutely. And, cool. and thank you so much for 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 bringing that uh, to the forefront. Um, the program that we have at Sing Sing, where we offer a master's in professional studies, um, it's completed in one year. The program was started in 1982. And since that time, we've graduated over 520 men with master's degrees. Um, that is one of the reasons that I came to NYTS. Uh, I was minding my own business as executive pastor at FCBC, living my best life. Um, and this opportunity um, presented itself. And through prayer and study, I learned about this program. Um, and so for me now, my goal is to expand the program. As the first woman president, I want to expand that program to a female facility as well. Um, that program, uh, when, when the men come out, they are ready to embrace the world. Our recidivism rate is less than 10% over the lifetime of the program. It'll be 40 years old next year um, with less than 3% in the last five years. And the New York City recidivism rate is at 49%. So we know the program works and it is a part of why NYTS is who it is as an organization because it does the work of practice, practicing what it preaches. Um, and so absolutely that is, I would love to see, you know, every seminary in the country offer some type of educational programs. I know many of them have certificates, but a certificate, it doesn't go as far as a degree when people come home. Um, and so us being serious, that goes back to that Matthew 25 mandate. Not only are we visiting those in prison, but creating opportunities for them to, to have, you know, restoration in their lives when they come home as well. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Josh, do you think it's time for our fun rapid fire? Yeah, but before we do that, I just want to leave a space for either of you as you think about your green shoots or anything else that this conversation has has brought up to you. Are there any last words before we go to our fun round, our really fun round? We are, we've had some fun rounds already. Um, but, you know, is there a specific thought or something you want to share before we sign, before we sort of head to the last bit here? I'll say, you know what, I'm just so grateful for this conversation. And we need to, to have more of these kinds of conversations. When I think about 
um, the Orman Center and, you know, this call for Shalom. Um, and some of us, you know, you know, understand Shalom is peace, but peace also means, you know, without war or conflict. Um, I had an opportunity to go to, to India and when they greet uh, one another in the village that I went to, Kalambalam Palam, um, they put their hands together and they um, greet each other saying the word Namaskaram. And so I just assumed it was saying hello because that's what that's how people greet you. Namaskaram, Namaskaram. And when I asked the pastor what it meant, um, the explanation that was given was that, oh, no, it's, it's more than hello. Um, the joining of the hands represents the nerves in the fingernails coming together, basically saying in, in the fingertips coming together, basically saying um, my entire being is present with you as I greet you. Mm. Um, and so sometimes we think, you know, these words just have singular meanings. These expressions have singular meanings, but it's so much bigger and it's so much more. Um, and peace um, without conflict, without war is something that our nation needs. It's something that our world needs. It's something that our churches need. Um, you know, it's something that people of faith need to understand what does peace look like? You know, even when we think about what happened on January 6th, where is the shalom, um, you know, present in there, particularly for people who are carrying signs, you know, saying Jesus is the way. Um, and so I appreciate the work that's coming forth from this center because it is a very relevant, a very restorative and a very revolutionary work. And that's what we represent at NYTS. So I just want to thank you all and certainly thank um, Pastor Gallier for um, making this conversation so much rich. I've learned so much uh, just being in conversation. So thank you. Well, thank you both. Um, honestly, this has been this has been really tremendous. But let's uh, let's honor your time and, and, and finish this out. And what we're going to do is we're going to ask you a few questions, kind of rapid fire way. It just allows us to get to know you better as people. All right. So if you're ready and, and maybe what we'll do just so that we don't have to wonder who's going to go first. Let's uh, let's uh, Dr. Walren, if you you'll answer first and then pastor, if you go next on each of these questions, that'll make it easy for us. All right. Here's the first question. What's the most interesting book you've, it doesn't have to be a book. It could be a show or a, you know, a podcast, but something in the watch, listen to category that you have enjoyed and that you'd commend to our listeners and why? Ooh, that's a hard one to name one book, but I would have to say um, Don Miguel Ruiz, The Four Agreements, um, because it gives you permission to question everything that you believe um, to really do that internal work of asking yourself, why do I believe that? And then giving yourself the opportunity to release old beliefs, to unlearn and relearn and to re-engage yourself in the world in a way that you really hadn't been given permission to do um, in the past. Yeah, I would I would agree, man. That is really tough to pick one book. Um, well, you can I, break a rule. You can break the rule. So... <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say, um, I'm, I'm going to break the rules. I'm going to say the first thing that came to mind is liberating ministry from success, from the success syndrome. I'm a, I like Kent Hughes. He was a former professor at Westminster. And I think he was at Talbot Seminary for a while. Um, and to Dr. Waldron's point earlier, we are in this, because of social media, in this competition phase almost, and trying to keep up with the Joneses and all of this. And I know for me, 
I've been very graced by God to always have had success in, from a numbers perspective as a pastor and really felt like I needed to be set free from all of that pressure for success. So Liberating Ministry from Success Syndrome, um, I think is one book I would mention. And, and then because of COVID, I just started doing a massive amount of reading on adaptive leadership. It's not something I really never studied before. And I have found that everything that I've read and, and applied around adaptive leadership has been really life transforming, not just at the church, but really in every aspect of my life. Great. All right. Speaking of COVID, what's the first thing you want to do when post-COVID, right, that you can't do now? What's that one first thing you're going to do? Well, I'll say we 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 just came back from from a trip to to Turks and Caicos. Oh, so you've already done it. <laughs> um, traveling is. I just literally we just got back on Saturday, um, so that's what I've been waiting to do. I love to travel to see new places, to meet new people, certainly to eat great new food. Um, and being able to go away, my husband, uh, Mike Walvern, who's actually was a member on the, uh, the chair of the board of visitors at Duke. Um, it was his 50th birthday. And so we, we took our family, our kids, our mother, my grandmother was able to travel for the first time internationally. Um, and so travel, we just did it, just came back. And that's what I'm looking forward to that and hugging people. I miss hugging people. Um, and so now that folks are getting vaccinated and you're starting to feel a little more comfortable, um, the travel and the hugs are what I've missed the most. Yeah. My answer is similar. It's, um, travel. I, um, I, I got married during COVID. We got married in August and we've not been anywhere together wow. um, since COVID. And so I'm looking forward to taking my wife anywhere she wants to go <laughs> and um, just kind of getting That's always gone a good answer. What is the f- most interesting music you're listening to right now that's getting you through? <laughs> could be a band, could be a genre. I, I am all about hip hop and R&B soul um, all day. If I'm down, if I'm stressed, if I'm worried, whatever it is, I put some hip hop on and start singing and it changes everything for me. We should have. Well, some I'm, I'm going to be more saved in my answer. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I so agree with you. <laughs> um, I'm, um, you know what? I've been listening to because I've been uh, intrigued around this group of young people producing music, gospel music. It's kind of a new genre. Um, it's a group, Maverick City Music. And they've been doing a lot of stuff with like elevation worship. And I'm very intrigued by this very unlikely combination of people coming together to worship. And so I've been listening to their music. They're interesting writers and they're young people who We've been told Generation Z has left the church and all that. And they're, you know, they're very much listening to some of their stuff. Two more questions. If you could share a meal with one inspiring person, dead or alive, who would it be? Um, that, absolutely. That, that would definitely have to be Jesus. Um, I, I, I don't said, know if that's... that's... Jesus. I should have said, except, except for Jesus. Jesus. You, can't, you can't have dinner with Jesus. Not yet. Oh, gosh. You know what? I think it'd have to be (laughs) Brandon. 
Um, I think it would have to be Jarena Lee. Um, just reading her story has just never been enough for me. Um, it just gives me so much life and um, everything that she went through to, to preach and compared to how I grew up and being told no, I appreciate um, our Vice President uh, Kamala Harris saying she eats no for breakfast. And Jarena Lee is a woman that I'm convinced ate no for breakfast. So I would love to be able to sit and talk with her. Yeah, that's um, another great question. I um, I I was gonna say Elon Musk. I'm kind of curious about meeting him, but I have to tell you, um, after after Naomi Osaka's decision with the French Open this week, um, her to be so present at such a young age, I'm gonna go ahead and elevate her and say Naomi Osaka. All right. So last question. Think about this one. In six words or less, what would your epitaph read or what would you like it to read? Right? Six words? I would say uh, Lakeisha lived, loved, served, and laughed. Nice. Good. Um, now, I'm not willing to commit to the whole it's going to be on my, my tombstone thing. <laughs> but for virtual digital epitaph purposes. There you go. Um, I would say help people thrive in Jesus name. You guys are good. Fantastic. We so appreciate you taking the time spending with us. We know you're both super busy. We uh, wish you all of God's blessing in what you're doing. And uh, again, just grateful for you. 